G'day mate, Forty here. So I have been up to make my way through any of the articles about Donald Trump's latest indictment for mishandling classified documents. I don't know what it is, and I don't know if there's any wisdom here, but I just start to get a headache when I read these articles about Donald Trump's indictment for, for mishandling documents. It, it seems to be you know, a fight over paperwork. It seems to be a fight over trivia. It, it seems to be a prosecution for something that's not particularly important. It seems to be a fight over record keeping. I mean, really? Is this what it's come down to? Is this, you know, what the, the big deal is? That we're, we're fighting over record keeping and what exactly belongs in the National Archives? It, it just seems so minor. And then the other thing that, that grabs my attention is that there are all these articles decrying how Donald Trump is stoking anger and fury. And I, I think to the extent I'm able to pay any attention at all, yeah, I, I do think Donald Trump is stoking anger and fury. But what the hell was the Black Lives Matter movement? Wasn't that all about stoking anger and fury and how that was righteous? In fact, we had to supersede, get rid of, turn our back on, forget about all the COVID restrictions once uh, George Floyd died because the anger and fury of the Black Lives Matter movement, that outweighed every other moral consideration. That outweighed all COVID restrictions, which until then, and then for the two years after then, COVID restrictions were the preeminent moral issue of our time. Tell me that I'm wrong. 40, you're wrong. So if it's wonderful for Black Lives Matter to be you know, filling people with fury and anger, motivating people to go out and commit massive numbers of crimes. Yeah, I know 90% of Black Lives Matter rallies were mostly peaceful, but we've had an absolute explosion of murder, of crime, a deterioration in the quality of life. Uh, millions of people have been frightened. Millions of people have pulled their heads in. Millions of people are less likely to volunteer to do anything in the wider society. People are much more likely in big cities and around big cities to stay home, right, watch TV and not get involved in, in the, the wider community. People are more incentivized to work from home. The, the Black Lives Matter crime spree that it unleashed, along with a huge increase in traffic deaths and pedestrian deaths, right, this is all based on the notion that it was righteous to be filled with anger and, and fury. So hasn't this been the, the rallying call for, for left-wing protests, including for civil rights, that anger and fury are good, right? What uh, Martin Luther King unleashed, wasn't that, uh, you know, good? Yeah, it led to an absolute explosion in murder rates and crime rates. But um, isn't that a, a good thing? So no justice, no peace. Uh, remind me. Tell me I'm wrong about this. No justice, no peace. Is that, is that something that comes from the left? Or is that something that comes from the right? To the extent that I'm aware of that phrase being used in, in politics, it only comes from the left. Right? The left has harnessed anger and fury to push its agenda, to disrupt the lives of ordinary people, to disrupt the lives of tens of millions of ordinary people, to incentivize a massive increase in, in crime rates, a massive increase in murder rates, a massive increase in uh, rape rates and assault rates and grievous bodily harm rates and just a general sense of, of mayhem and, and fear, right? But this was always, you know, harnessed towards wholly left-wing causes. So on the other hand, it, it, it seems a very unlevel playing field. Remember the 1994 election and I think Time Magazine did their cover story on angry white men. So it's bad for white men to be angry on behalf of conservative and Republican causes. But it's righteous if they were angry on behalf of Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ protests or other you know, marginalized communities or sacred communities. Right? What woke means is that there are groups that you may not criticize. Right? You may not criticize blacks, Jews, uh, Puerto Ricans, 
LGBTQ communities, right? They are above and beyond criticism. They are sacred communities, and you're not allowed to criticize them. And if they harness and they fuel anger and rage, that's a, a good thing. Luke Cross says Trump is a narcissistic criminal. Then having a big argument either way. I, I I'm just I haven't been able to make myself, you know, read through any of these latest Trump indictment stories. Left is smarter and has institutional power. Yeah, I think that's true. Right wingers are impotent and stupid. Just look at the Trump rally in Miami, a cultish circle of ignorance. So the Republican Party and the American right has definitely gone down market uh, over the past uh, decade, uh, particularly. But National Review started going down market in the 1980s. National Review, the premier journal of, of conservative thought in, in America, probably since the, the 1950s, all right, used to be primarily written by professors. But starting about the 1980s, 90s, it became primarily written by pundits who don't really have anything to offer. And so there has been a very steady decline since the 1950s in the intellectual caliber of, uh, of the right, of right-wing analysis of conservative political perspectives. I mean, I mean, it's probably the dominant theme on my show is how moronic, how low IQ the level of right-wing commentary is these days. It's just uh, childish pickings. So... Let's play a little bit here from uh, Mickey Mickey Kaus. He's uh, he's talking about how two of the Republicans running for president. So I assume he means Tim Scott and who's the other one? Are gay? Does he? Uh, who's the other one? Tim Scott and person is going to have more influence on him than anyone else. So why would you not want to know who is going to be influencing? Oh man, I totally screwed that up. All right? Did did. Uh, I don't think you heard any of, of that. Man, I, I blew it there. I blew it. I'm in the room. Useful in politics. The, you know, I mean, the basic, the rule, the default rule in, I found in Washington is, as a friend of mine put it, they're all gay. <laughs> okay, so. But that's your whole theory of life, Mickey, is that they're all gay. There are at least two members of the Republican presidential field who are in the closet. And you know who they are? I think so, yeah. Well, tell us. No, no. I'm done bringing out people. There's a okay. larger general theoretical point about okay. gay Mickey, wait, 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 wait. Mickey, Tim Scott, you're not, I, I can tell by your expression that that's one of them. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't do that. that. That has already started. People have already sort of tried to embarrass Tim Scott. And I guess I, 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 guess I can't be pissed off at Gawker trying to out Peter Thiel and yet try to out other people. You should, respect people. You should respect people. That's the one saving grace, but you, can, you should respect people who are in the closet. So yeah, that's I'm just saying that, 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 you know, I'm, Mickey Haley? Mickey Haley? I'm not, I'm, I'm not Why are you saying laugh? that. That's totally plausible. Why are you laughing at that? It's uh, not funny, Mickey. This isn't funny. No, I'm trying to think of somebody who's obviously, uh, who would be um, Chris Christie. I'm not saying Chris Christie dresses in women's clothing. I'm not saying he doesn't. Oh, that's what I was going to tell you. It's like, I don't know. How do you explain this? So when I was a kid in El Paso, Texas, at this point, I'm like nine years old. And my the high school where my sisters went. Public- Wait, was is he serious? He, he thinks... Chris Christie is is also gay? Is that what he's saying? Well, look, what's, what's important is that we stop, uh, we stop thinking of, of phone parties as, uh, as gay. Right. Here's more from uh, Mickey. Oh, yeah. well, um, man, that was some serious fucking suicide bomb. That was unbelievable. It also makes you wonder about Rubio. For people who don't remember it, Chris Christie said, you know, all you do is recite talking points like some fucking parrot or something, and then Marco Rubio just repeats exactly the talking points he had just said. And Christy says, you're doing it now. <laughs> it's right. It was Marco Rubio, he blamed some consultant for telling him. Always uh, repeat your talking points when people uh, are accusing you of being somebody who merely repeats talking points. It's, it's, it's weird because Rubio is actually a very, very effective candidate. Yeah, he but it, it makes you wonder how. Does, does he just do his homework and memorize his talking points? He does that, but he can be spontaneous and adaptive too, and he just wasn't there. That was amazing. And later on when he was doing his, his sort of he, he had a gay period in his campaign where he seemed like he, he really was like mocking Trump's sexuality and talking about the side of his penis. And he what? was like floating whoa, across whoa, whoa. the stage like Liberace. Wait, he wait, was wait. hilarious and talented. But, um, I don't remember. Later in the campaign, the last phase of the campaign was mocking Trump for whatever something stupid Trump said about, you know, uh, I guarantee you that everything's all right in that department, by which he meant his uh, sexual prowess. Well, he meant the size of his blood muscle. Was that it? Okay. Well, there would be what called- that. What? Rubio took off from that. I no, guarantee I mean, that's you. when I thought, how low can American politics go? It was when 
it was, I think because of the Stormy Daniels thing, I think Stormy Daniels right, had said right, it's smaller right. than for the, most men of that height. And, and he brought it up. And there had also been things about his hand size. You know, right, right, right. Spy Magazine decades ago had referred to him as, Bulgarian, right, as a short-fingered right. Bulgarian. And, uh, and he came out in one of the debates and, and like either he or somebody else alluded to it. And he said, I guarantee you there's no problem in that department. very important thought, oh, for him God. to set the record straight. Um, eh. but, but it was followed by going even lower. And Marco Rubio sort of based his camp, last-ditch campaign on a pretty well-done stand-up routine. It seemed a little light in the loafers, you know? What can I say? I'm not saying anything about Marco, but I'm just saying. So why are you willing to speculate that he's gay when you're not? I, I have no reason to think he's gay. Um, there, there is the foam. foam why party. are you rubbing it's yourself a, while you talk about him being gay? Also. <laughs> um, the, um, the, uh, there, there is the point. There was supposedly a picture of him at a foam party in Florida. Yeah, there are. There are. If you wanted to make the case that Rubio was gay, you could build a, a semi-credible circumstantial case. But I've told that that you don't have to be gay to go to a phone party. It's like actually the most fun thing you'll ever do in your life. Wait, what is, what is a phone like party? You go, I guess you go to a pool and they spray foam around and you dance in the in the foam. That's like a giant bubble bath in your bathing suit. In your bathing suit. And okay. it's like completely fantastically fun. And I know I know heterosexual women who've gone to them and just, we don't even know that Rubio was in this one because it was probably a fake photo. But um, it doesn't mean you're gay hmm. just because you go to a phone party. Okay, um, well, I'm glad I know that. Uh, anyway, um, that, that wasn't my point. My point was just that uh, what was my point? My point was that it, for for a for a guy who's as talented as Rubio is to have fucked up that campaign as badly as he did is pretty impressive. Makes you wonder if he's really talented. So, uh, I, Mickey, yeah, I, go ahead. I, I, I claim maybe maybe these were all elaborately scripted jokes. I've seen him make what seemed like spontaneous jokes, the way Cory Booker can make spontaneous jokes that drew a laugh just because he had a good sense of humor. So maybe I was con, but um, I don't think so. That was that was the whole the one article I wrote in that campaign was. We should be very scared of Rubio because he's a talented politician, which makes him more of a threat on immigration than if he wasn't a talented politician. Okay, so we had an interview by by Matt from the History Speaks channel of Nathan Kofnis. This was a week ago. So here is Kofnis answering a question from our own Luke Croft. Why is the right so stupid? Take a look at the paper. Okay, we're, last question. Um, maybe Luke Croft. Um, why did the far right, alt right, become so stupid? That's an interesting question. Maybe you have a theory on that. Well, I, I, uh, I tweeted about this um, a few days ago. Um, so conservatism and right wing movements in general tend to become stupid. Uh, there, I think, are several reasons. One, why mainstream conservatism is uh, stupid, and this is something that we uh, disagree with, is I think leftism and wokeism are largely the logical consequence of the equality thesis. And uh, so most smart, so conservatives generally accept the equality, the, the premise that gives rise to wokeism, but then they deny its logical conclusions. And I'm not saying there aren't, there can't be smart people who do that, or there can't be Take your position, that. Nathan. We're having but, you on here to state your views. So but, okay, I, I won't uh, to try to be overly agreeable. I think smart people are going to be disproportionately drawn to wokeism if those are the given those two options. Now, when you start uh, an alternative movement that does acknowledge uh, race differences, as the alt right did, first you get a lot of uh, uh, you get attention from. Uh, from smart people who are looking for a political uh, alternative that is rooted in what they see as the reality of race differences. You also get a lot of people with nothing to lose, people who are just very disagreeable and kind of against the world in general and uh, just want to make trouble. Uh, you need mechanisms to filter out the people who are not going to be helpful to the movement if the movement is going to be successful and to prevent them from being elevated into leadership positions. And the alt-right uh, never... Uh, was never focused on that. Just anybody who could get attention. This all this all happens in other right wing circles, other conservative circles as well. So status is entirely determined by your ability to generate attention, and not not really by the the quality of the attention or the quality of your thoughts or your plans. So that's why right wing leaders in general are much more often grifters than uh, uh, their leftist counterparts. Of course, you have grifters on the left too, but I mean, just. Uh, the landscape on the right is dominated by grifters. And of course, uh, the leaders of the alt-right were um, emphasized the Jewish stuff as uh, 
uh, the linchpin, a very important important element of alt right ideology, which was a wrong theory, which, well, the wrong theory, which gives gives rise to further stupidity, uh, which attracts people who uh, a mixed bag, and uh, um, yes, and then it spirals out of control as it did. Yeah, so I'm just going to push back a little bit on your your first answer, Nathan. I think potentially. So yeah, I just just to reiterate, as I said earlier, I don't accept the premise that um, you know because something is environmental that therefore we can change it and should change it in terms of transforming culture. So if it is environmental, um, we don't know how to change it. Many environmental differences between groups are, 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 are incorrigible, right? We don't know how to change them with social policy. So I don't think it follows that we have to have some woke Manhattan project and you know deprecate meritocracy and have less competent people. So I, I, I would respect on that. One point I'd add, and I don't know if you agree with this, is, um, this is uh, critiquing what you said, it's just adding onto it, is I tweeted the other day about how I think the conservative movement has too many lawyers and not enough philosophers, um, um, artists, novelists, historians among its intelligentsia. I just think there's oversaturation of lawyers among intellectuals on the right. Do you think that's a problem or, or no? Well, you know, I uh, uh, I thought it's, we have a problem in conservatism, that we have few intellectuals, few philosophers or philosophically minded people to think through ideas. Um, and, uh, and I myself became a conservative philosopher. And I discovered it's not that there are not there are no people like this, but there's no market for people like this in the conservative it's world. Really interesting. So my, uh, I am uh, just based on my academic papers. I mean, I've uh, probably like the third most well-known millennial philosopher, or the third most widely read millennial philosopher in terms of my papers, which have academic papers in total about four hundred thousand downloads. I can't believe that because I can't think of the top of my head of any other. Will McCaskill, I say, would be one. Uh, Kate Mann, probably two. Okay. Uh, but in terms of papers, I'm definitely number one. Uh, my articles often do very well, uh, just in terms of clicks and generating discussion. But I can't publish in uh, uh, legacy conservative uh, mm. outlets. They don't care what I have to say. So my stuff gets rejected just based on, on the title. Mm. If I say, are you interested in this? Uh, they'll just say, yeah, no, we don't care what you have to say. Mm. And so what they do, what they they publish an endless stream of articles on the same ideas about uh, Chuck Schumer is a hypocrite and uh, yeah. Elizabeth Warren's not really a th Elizabeth Warren's not really a thirty second Native American. I mean, it's like yeah, you know. So so why uh, they just don't want to hear mm. from somebody like me because the idea of challenging their audience in any way is not something that they're interested in. Um, the idea of entertaining subtlety or ideas that go beyond the very basic ideas that, that they're familiar with. They're just, uh, yeah, that's not part of the conservative movement. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a serious problem, I think, for, for the right, um, that they really are hostile to intellectual life, I think, in the way the left isn't. As absurd as we may consider many premises the left has, they, there is like more of a respect for, for intellectuals in the left than the right. I think the right is very much drunk on populism right now. Yeah, but there were supposed to be a small number of intellectual yeah. conservative outlets, but it's just, it's largely fake intellectualism. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, we're going to get one more question and then I got to go work out. Um, one more question from M. Nathan. Okay, let's play a little bit more here from History Speaks, Matt talking with Nathan Collins. That it's all just in our minds. Uh, and it's all just a psychological, sociological question and not really a philosophical one. Then you're probably just. So most of the first 20 minutes of the interview is a discussion of morality. Does morality exist outside of our minds? All right. Is there, for example, a transcendent you know, reality to morality? Or according to Kafnis and also to Matt here, morality is just something that's purely subjective that exists in our minds. You're just going to drop out of the field. And then everyone who's left will be, or most of the people who are left are going to be moral realists and so a moral realist who believes that there are systems of morality that exist outside of the human mind, so that there is a reality to moral systems above and beyond you know, individuals' subjective perceptions. So Kafnis does not believe that there's a reality to moral systems outside of the individual's subjective perspective. Then it looks like there's... Know all the support for moral realism because everyone who because mm -hmm. all the professional meta ethicists have gone to um yeah and all the people who are interested in, in the more objective framework have gone to epistemology or metaphysics or whatever or to science yeah anything but but meta ethics yeah there yeah. okay so now I'm going to ask you a little more pointed questions about your biography so you have uh, you've been in some level of trouble 
because of, of views, uh, not because of anything you've done in terms of academic misconduct or anything like that, but because of uh, views you've expressed on race and and and, ar and arguments that race uh, could be linked to intelligence in some kind of biological sense. So I completely defend your, your freedom of inquiry. I would stand up with you and sign any petition if people were trying to vilify you. I think it's absurd. You can't go after people for- You would sign the, the pro-Kafnis. Yeah, 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 100%. Yeah, Come on, yeah. I wouldn't be platforming you if I were an anti. But I will challenge you on this on this point. And I, I think you'd run rings around me if we talked about the actual um, argument. I mean, my- I'll... So this is the crazy, crazy thing that we live in. A, a channel with 320 subscribers. Okay, I've got channels with like 6,000 subscribers or 2,000 subscribers, right? When you have someone on and you've got 300 subscribers, you're platforming them. Right, this idea that that history speaks is platforming Nathan Kofnis because he's got a, a channel with three hundred subscribers seems seems a tad stretched to me. But that is the way this is talked about. To even have people on with dissident views, right? You're platforming them is is the left wing and the the centrist critique, right? It's it's an attempt to try to you know narrow the Overton window of the type of people that you can talk to. I'll just give you my a priori position, and I admit I'm politically biased. Like I don't want these claims. Okay, so if you're doing an interview, there's no need to give your a priori position, right? There's no need to frame things in a moral way. There's no need to begin questions with, with stating your own feelings about a topic, particularly when you don't know anything about the topic. All right. Uh, Matt here from History Speaks knows virtually nothing about the topic, but yet he feels the necessity of stating his opinion before someone who knows a great deal about the topic. And earlier in the interview, he talked about moral realism with, with Kaufness, a, a PhD in philosophy, right? And you know, Matt doesn't, you know, doesn't have anywhere near the standing that Kaufness does in the field of, of philosophy. So it's ridiculous when you effectively know virtually nothing compared to the person you're talking about and yet you're taking up you know all sorts of time and diminishing the vibe of an interview to give your ill-informed opinion the biological differences that are relevant to intellect to be true so i'll reflecting on that like last night I'm like yeah i definitely have a political bias but also i just it just seems the priority seems very i mean a couple of the arguments given don't seem very compelling to me so okay we've had 50 years of social policy that haven't worked to bridge the achievement gap between african americans and whites i mean to, to infer from that that okay therefore we therefore genetic differences seems like a rather heroic leap i mean environmental differences can be very incorrigible right i mean the example i gave on twitter last night and again we're we're at fairly low discourse here because i'm no I, i'm no i don't have competence on this literature frankly but like yeah has matt from history speaks come on my show probably half a dozen times yeah you know, just intuitively, there are plenty of environmental differences that are deeply, deeply incorrigible. Like, you know, if we wanted to make Saudi Arabians uh, Methodists. So Matt is a historian in training. He's a PhD student at the London School of Economics in History. And he's got a debate coming up with Mike Enoch about Holocaust denial in three days. That's environmental difference. They're not biologically Muslim. But we, we don't know how if that would even be possible, right? So the fact that the differences are incorrigible doesn't seem to me to be a, a, a good argument for them being genetic. And also, like, I don't know, it just seems like, I mean, my undergraduate degree was in economics and um, also philosophy, but economics. And it, it, it just seems to me a bit of a stretch that we can cash out these claims about biology from constructs of social science, which, which, and also, like, constructs of social science tend to be, as far as I recall, good social science theories are about predictive validity and causality we can kind of set aside as maybe beyond these models a lot of time. But uh, what do you think about it? Those are pretty scattered observations, but how would you come back at, at those? And I'm going to give you the moral, the moral objection, which I think I can articulate better. Ironically, because we just said morals are fake, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I... You, you you say that you have a political bias, and to be honest, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, without a political bias, it's uh, um, comes I think uh, quite difficult to question the evidence, which is not. I mean, in in science, there's there's almost almost never one piece of evidence that just uh, that everything turns on one experiment, which is a false view of science promoted by some uh, philosophers of science, where there's a crucial experiment where um, it goes uh, it goes a certain way, and now we all agree that the that this it's established the truth of the new hypothesis. There are many, many lines of evidence. Uh, and in the case of uh, a biological basis for uh, race differences in intelligence, everything points in the same direction. It's not just in one particular country, the gap proved uh, resistant to change for 50 years. It's in every country where you have population representative groups of Africans, Europeans, East Asians, Ashkenazim, you get the same patterns of difference every yeah so just taking these these basic facts of life into consideration i i just don't see how you can 
develop an intelligent or wise understanding of reality, denying that different groups have different gifts, right? Just such a commonsensical, obvious realization that uh, evolution has worked an effect on, on people as well as animals, and different peoples evolve completely separately for hundreds of thousands and millions of years, uh, developing different personalities, uh, different forms of social organization, uh, differing levels of intelligence, right? Sometimes it's adaptive to not be so intelligent. If, if food is easily available, all right, uh, why would you want to burn up, you know, enormous resources uh, thinking about things when, you know, food is just there to, to grab, you know, year round, right? So in some settings, intelligence is, you know, highly necessary to get through long, nasty winters, all right? intelligence would probably convey an evolutionary advantage in, in other settings you know high intelligence high cognitive labor probably be evolutionarily maladaptive so it depends on the environment time without any exception the exceptions people point to are when they're not population representative groups uh, but when they are representative it's always the same uh, it's always the same uh, the same when you give intelligence tests it's the same pattern of differences uh, Look at crime rate, it's the same pattern of differences, legitimacy, uh, educational attainment. And when you come up with some sociological story for, for the differences in one particular uh, society that might seem plausible, you will be able to find societies where it doesn't apply, and yet you have exactly the same outcomes. And now in the case you said, uh, well, Saudi Arabia, we have no, no idea how to turn them Methodist, so that shows that even though an outcome can be cultural, we, we might not know how to change it. But we do know how to change it. It's just that we couldn't, we don't have the political will or, or the ability to change it. But if you took everyone in Saudi Arabia and had them raised by, adopted at birth and raised by a Methodist, they'd be Methodist. And you could drop them, airdrop them back into Saudi Arabia. Now everyone in Saudi Arabia would be Methodist. Now we do that. We have a version of that for uh, testing race differences, which is cross-racial adoption studies. And it always turns out that by the time they become adults, so heritability of IQ is very low in children. So, uh, Adoption can have a large effect on IQ in childhood, but as the child uh, grows up uh, and which are to ages where heritability of IQ become greater and greater, IQ goes down. And by adulthood, uh, blacks who are adopted uh, uh, and raised by white families, uh, their IQ turns out to be okay. Roughly the same. Let me let me just intrude in a couple of points. So I think on Africa, it's, I think if you're this is so infuriating. All right, someone who knows his stuff. All right, someone who's learned. All right, is us hot button. Uh, questions or not so much questions but uh, gets a series of challenges and starts methodically you know, mowing down these challenges and then gets interrupted right so this is this is how the world works all right people will walk all over you to the extent that you allow it right people will abuse you to the extent that you allow it and people should not put up with with being abused if you are an invited guest on a program you're invited to talk on a hot button issue, you should not put up with being interrupted, particularly by someone who has considerably less learning than, than you in that area, right? If you allow people to walk all over you, you allow people to interrupt you, right? You allow people to, you know, abuse you, then they'll just keep doing it again and again and again. You have to call it out. And if it's rude and abusive, you may have to be very firm, very loud, you may have to figuratively rip someone's head off to let them know that this is not okay, right? You can't be a doormat. We're comparing whites in Africa and blacks in Africa. There's just such an obvious deferential history, and not just in terms of discrimination, but just in terms of, of obvious cultural differences. I think it's just not a great example. Um, I understand you could say all these countries, but to me, it, it seems very intuitive that there would be differences in the academic achievement of some person who comes from a tribal background uh, in South Africa, let's say, versus someone whose parents were, uh, you know, um, physicians or teachers or in Rhodesia. I mean, they just have a totally different cultural context in terms of the adoption study. So if I was interviewing Matt about history, where he knows 10 times, 20 times, 50, 100 times more than me, right, I'd be keeping my interjections very rare. I'd keep my questions very short. I'd keep my objections very short because I'd have a, a sense of reality that he has a hundred times as much knowledge as me in a particular topic. So I may quickly raise an objection or try to you know, sharply form a question with as few words as possible so that the bloke who knows the most, right, gets into a flow 
and, and gets to share all the stuff he knows. And by comparison, you know, I don't bother people with my relative level of ignorance. I mean, what I would want to say, and again, I, I, I don't want to make this a back and forth on this because I just lack the confidence to do it. But there is obviously a difference in socialization for blacks, even if they have white. Okay, he says he doesn't want to make it a back and forth, but he precisely makes it a back and forth by repeatedly interrupting coughness. And so this happens a lot in debates. You'll, you'll have a debate or you'll be hosted and people say, okay, let's talk about Israel, for example, but I hope we're not going to say X, Y, Z, right? And the host, the moderator, will try to shut you off from what you're allowed to talk about. So... Uh, the the host here, Matt, says, well, I don't want to make this a back and forth because I, I don't know anything, but he precisely makes it a back and forth by repeatedly interrupting the guest who actually has expertise in the topic. So you have to call people out when they do this to you because if you just allow people to roll over you, they will do it again and again and again. So luckily I've done, I don't know, about half a dozen shows with Matt, so I, I know how he, he operates. He repeatedly will just bulldoze you. He'll just repeatedly interrupt you again and again and again and again and again. He, he just can't help himself from interrupting you. So you have to figuratively rip his head off if he starts doing that and let him know, this is not okay. I am going to finish my point, right? So when people start abusing you, you got to, for their sake and for yours, stop. This is not okay. You don't get to abuse me this way. You invited me as a guest on your show. You ask me hot-button controversial issues. I get to answer your questions before you interrupt me. White parents for white. So, um, look, uh, the one point I'd make, too, is what about the phone effect data? I mean, again, I'm sure you've heard all this stuff because I'm not. I just, this isn't my team. But the, for me, it's very counterintuitive that um, IQs have gone up so much with populations. And I understand it doesn't logically follow from that that the gap between them could be bridged. But it seems it's pretty compelling to me that um, you know, like if you look at the African-American population in the United States, they score higher in IQ tests than whites did earlier in the 20th century, I believe, right? So, But at any given time, there is always a gap. And so the Flynn effect affects everybody, and everybody's IQ goes up, up to a point. And the Flynn effect can't go on to ever, on forever. But it's, we've, it's uh, maybe a small amount of the Flynn effect was due to uh, improved nutrition. Most of it was due to, uh, to education and test-taking sophistication. Um, and there's a limit to how much you can improve. Uh, people's performance by by education and uh, that kind of thing, and we've reached the Flynn effects have maxed out, and it's not going up anymore. Um, and uh, why is that, axiomatic? Why is axiomatic? Maybe well, we don't know how to raise it higher. I can accept that, but why is it some axiom? So Kafka starts to explain <laughs> the Flynn effect, and the guy who doesn't know anything by comparison to Nathan Kafka like interrupts him. It's infuriating. The problem I have with libertarians, essentially, the, the form of argument. They tend to assume, in my view, again, I am not the best person to argue this with you. <laughs> right, he, he understands he's not the best person, so don't argue with him. Just ask very brief questions. Right? He keeps admitting, I'm not the best person, I really don't know anything compared to you, my guest, and yet he keeps interrupting his guest. On the subject, so we're going to try to run away from it in like a few minutes. But the, the one point I'd raise is... Um... Yeah, so if you are a guest and the host wants to raise hot button topics and say that you are highly controversial but then run away from the topic no you don't get to raise a topic with, with me as a guest and then run away you don't get to put me in, in a bad light you don't get to you know, ride your your white horse you know and and wave your bloody flag but then interrupt me when i the guest you know ha have something to say right no you don't get to raise hot button issues, controversial issues, put me in a very you know awkward spot, and then run away to some other topics. Don't allow people to pull this crap with you because people will do it all the time. That, that that intuitively strikes me as weak about the hereditary arguments is they tend to assume that a highly incorrigible difference, which and you, you describe this data that the Flynn effect is ending. I believe you, of course. They tend to assume that a highly incorrigible difference is therefore genetic. And it just seems to me that that does not follow logically. But I'm not sure who says that the incorrigible difference. Well, like, I, I don't going up anymore. I don't going up anymore. I mean, there's, there's one piece of evidence in a very large package of evidence. And we also have brain size differences, which track uh, intelligence differences among racial groups, uh, Africans, Europeans, East Asians. Um, you have the entire history of the world. Being well, okay, history, though, history, here's, I would 
Okay, you can pick apart. So why why are so Koftis just starts to get going and rude Matt, you know, abuses him, runs all over him. Matt is the host here. Matt, you know, keeps admitting I don't know anything compared to you, and yet just when Koftis starts to get going, starts to make an answer. Rude Matt just abuses him, just runs right over him. The ignorant, the relatively ignorant person keeps interrupting, you know, destroying the flow of the person who actually knows something and doesn't allow him to develop any of his points. So if you're ever a guest in these kind of situations, say, no, no, I get to finish my point. You don't get to abuse me. You don't get to interrupt me. You don't get to hug the mic. You don't get to go off on all your different tangents and then interrupt me when I start to make sense of your stupidity. Let me challenge you on history because I can actually articulate myself. So people in the Near East, including, uh, so for example, Coptic Egyptians, my mother's Coptic Egyptian, they score low. Even they score, they are descended from the ancient Egyptians as far as we know, right? You know, an incredible civilization. They score low on these tests, right? So are we going to catch up from that, that, you know, the ancient Egyptians were stupid? I mean, and all the Near Easterners generally score low, including Christians who are not mixed with um, people from the Gulf or whatever. So I, I just, I guess the Near Eastern IQ, IQ scores tend to me to be an argument in favor of environmentalism because this is the... Yeah, this is the time to blow the rape whistle and say, I'm being raped here, right? And I'm not down with it. The cradle of civilization, yet they're, they're low on these tests of cognitive ability today. Well, everybody is an environmentalist to some extent. Everybody acknowledges that... Um... You, the environment affects your score on the test. It's just that the question is, when raised in equal environments, are there gaps on average between? Uh, so you can only make this determination if you're comparing populations that are raised under comparable. So my, my problem is, I think you just cannot. I'm sorry for interrupting you, Nathan. I'll let you finish on this point. We'll do something else. But one, last point I make is, I don't think that I think that you are. So we're talking about six times Matt is inter interrupted here. Has Kafnis gotten more than sixty seconds? To ever respond? Underrating. And I'm not just talking about systematic racism or whatever the love says, but just all kinds of cultural differences, different, experience, different experiences could be good, bad, or indifferent that people have who are African-American versus white in the United States, for example. So I just don't think you can control for environment effectively. You can control for certain variables, but I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. But go ahead. Well, you finish and we'll go So I, I don't have, uh, I don't think there are very reliable uh, data on populations outside uh, Africans who we know, really, we can measure the IQ of Africa uh, by looking at Africans in Western countries who are raised under comparable conditions, which suggests that their genetic potential of most African populations would probably be around 80. Uh, African-Americans have IQs of around 85 with 25% white admixture. Um, you know, the IQs of India or the Middle East, I don't think we, we know what their potential is. Uh, because I guess, it, I guess, look, I have, I have political biases on this. I'm and he interrupts him again. Right. Did Koftas even get 60 seconds to start to develop a point? Not, I think we're going to bore the audience. Go back to this because I have political biases. Oh, we're going to bore the audience. Yeah, you're going to bore the audience because the ignorant person keeps interrupting the person who actually knows something. I'm not well read in the subject. I defend your free speech 100% on it. Uh, carry on with the research, but I don't intuitively buy that we can cash up on these social science models, these claims. So of... do, do, you, do you really believe that the Congo and Korea have exactly the same innate potential. And it's just... I, I'm just, I, I'm not I'm not describing the view that I have. I'm describing skepticism of a view that you're putting forward. I don't know what so the potential my, of... My, my view genetically, genetically, genetic, well, there are differences between populations because genetically isolated populations diverge. I am not, I don't, I don't, I'm not in the business of making assertions I don't have, I don't believe I have adequate evidence for. And I, it could be my lack of reading, but I don't believe I have adequate evidence for assigning potential intelligence to a, to a group of people that, you know, have just had a radically different experience than in the in the in the western world or korea you know so well they have why do, where does the different experiences come from and why okay well, culturally it, differently this this is related to another thing uh, i think we're going to talk about which is the the jewish question uh, because my explanation for why are there jews everywhere in prominent positions is largely uh, uh, due to uh, intelligence differences and if you say well there's no difference between jews and anyone else then uh, the Conspiracy explanation becomes much more so, uh, so very attractive. This, this actually goes back goes to the transition question I have. And it relates to the, the kind of thing with Bo on this uh, race realism stuff. So we, we agree that the differences in academic achievement and ability exist. That's just a fact on these tests, right? Why, why is that not enough to fight 
when we agree to fight together, like DEI, affirmative action, these things. Like I'm 100% against this stuff. I think it's it's Sisyphean to try to make all groups equal in society. But why is it enough just to say there is there are these differences and we don't know how to change them? Why do we have to make incendiary? And again, I defend your right to do it. You shouldn't be punished. And if you if anyone goes after you, I'll sign any petition you want me to. But um, why do we have to make arguments that are incendiary? That is there any political benefit to it? Like why can't why can't what is wrong with my argument that these differences exist? We don't know how to change them. Therefore, we're gonna if we do this these DEI things, affirmative action things, it's gonna have less meritocracy. And it's, I, I don't understand why you're against DEI if you think that potentially everyone has the same uh, the same capacity. But they don't. They don't right now. Eventually, yeah, sure, maybe. But, but they don't right now. Theoretically, we'll change it. We could change. Sure. There, there is sure. some way. We don't. You say we don't know. Okay, yeah. so let's find out. Maybe it's it's. We should keep trying, but we shouldn't. No, but we shouldn't be rigging. No, no, no. Wokeism says, look, conservative view is this is the world as it is. These differences exist, right? We have to deal with the world as it is. We can't be like having doctors that are less competent because we want to do social engineering and have equal outcomes and change something that comes about through, let's say, history, right? Or culture. We don't know how to change this, and we have to just live with the world we have. I think that's, you don't think that's a coherent argument? You're saying the world we have is one in which uh, African Americans could have the same outcomes as Ashkenazim. Or yeah, Japanese yeah. I, I don't think right? that is they, they could. It's intuitively ruled out. How to, how to produce that. But, right. but, they, could, but they have the same potential to, to, to achieve in the same, same way as... Yeah, but we don't know how to turn, turn okay, we don't know. cultures so, into each other. Let, but the most important thing we could possibly do is find out. Why? Why? Because there's a, an enormous loss of potential and suffering. People not... Uh, people having bad outcomes uh, with, uh, with uh, dealing with crime and... Uh, frustration and poverty. Well, cr crime, and crime. We can we can deal with through other means. Then um, we don't need to culturally engineer. We need to just have a more vigorous approach to crime, and also a more humane prison. Like I think. Yeah, okay, so your your solution is is uh, toss them in prison, but the environment so they don't they don't need to go to. I, I, how, we don't know how to do this. Clearly, but, we don't. But if they are the same, if they're this, they're they have the same potential, we need to figure out how to bring about this this outcome because it, but, it should be possible so so it's so let's say um let's go back to the example of the near east right let's say that like like optic egyptians score low on these 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 tests right um you know let's say egyptians have the same potential maybe they don't maybe they do i don't know whatever you think let's say they had the same potential as swedes should we really be like investing in some manhattan project to transform their culture <laughs> i mean it seems also why do we know it would work like it just i, I guess the, the main premise that i fall back on i might get away from this because i'm just not competent in the technical literature that you are is that I think that to say a difference is incorrigible, and I'm not saying that's your only argument, but I'm saying I've heard this in many of these people, that to say a difference is incorrigible does not follow it is not firement. Okay, so if... Uh... So if you're ever interviewing someone who is competent and literate in the technical literature and you realize that you are not, then keep your points very, very short and, and don't you know talk over the person who actually knows something. Uh, and the, for, me, the, the, for me, at least, the Flynn effect stuff... Damn, is... so we're talking a dozen times here in 20 minutes of what could be a thoughtful, interesting discussion, right? You know, Matt just abuses his guest. Me some more additional skepticism because I don't think any. I don't think many people would intuitively think, well, African American community today is is um is, is intellectually superior to whites for most of American history, which is what so, the data seem to show. So, okay, so um, North Korea is one. I don't know exactly one of the poorest countries in the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people starving, uh, huge parts of the country. Basically, everything outside the capital, extremely undeveloped, uh, primitive in every way. If the North Korean regime fell and they opened their borders, then the world would show what they think of their potential. There would be a Manhattan Project. Uh, there would be, uh, everybody would be investing in North Korea because we know that even though it's the poorest country in the world, in 40 years, they're going to have their, they're going to okay, be well, exporting computer chips. Okay, and, maybe, uh, maybe. Because we, we know that. Why are Ukraine, and, why is Ukraine, uh, before the war, obviously, the war is just, you can't talk about Why before the war is you, did Ukraine have a lower GDP per capita than Botswana? Uh, this is a great point that Nathan Kofnis was just starting to develop when he gets, you know, run over by a rude host. Uh, and Ukraine is one of the poorest countries in the world. They're overwhelmingly white. Okay, I mean, that, that it's, it's, it's caught in a tug of war uh, with the, uh, the West and, uh, and Russia. They're, my, uh, I don't think that anything I'm saying implies that uh, environment uh, can't affect outcomes. Right, you're not implying uh, and that. that there, there can be political factors that stand in the way of certain interventions that ideally we would like to like to uh, perform. I guess, I guess the one point I fall back on, and I'm going to run away from this because, again, I know I'm not competent on this subject, but um, and, and I care about it. Like I'm, I have a political bias against your view, so I'm not going to pretend that's not the case. But I just think that just because we can't change something, we haven't figured out how to do it yet. In the in the context. So Matt also is illustrating something here. You can get away with a lot in life if you both 
if you're just honest, right? So he's honest that he doesn't really know much in this area, and he's honest that he's got a political bias. So if you're honest and upfront with people, even though he's incredibly abusive and rude as a host, right? It, it's so much easier to forgive because the guy's, you know, straightforward about where he's coming from. Stuff like social policy, which is a very clumsy, and education, which is very clumsy, politically uh, politically influenced domain. I don't think it follows that. I don't think that's strong evidence that we that we can't do it. I also don't think that we need to just say, okay, let's just change every standard and abandon meritocracy to achieve racial equity. I think you can make a very coherent argument against these things. Without, we disagree on that, maybe, but I think you can make a very coherent argument uh, that just says the differences exist, we don't know how to change them, so we're not going to make the, the admissions process either institutions or admit people to medical school with lower MCAT. I mean, there's many reasons to do, not to do that, that without like these um, these arguments. but. You know, you have a you have a free speech right to, to, to engage in them, and I guess that leads to my next question: Have you, for these views, how on earth did you? Get, I mean, like I'm on the political right, and I'm I'm like slightly, you know, I, I, I want to defend your free speech rights, and I do, but slightly like, ooh, you know, but how on earth did you get a position at Cambridge with these with the with your viewpoints? Like, how did did, did some woke people try to go after you? Um, it's just um, it's remarkable to me that you did. I mean, I'm glad you haven't been terminated or anything, but how did that happen? Well, I I, uh, I wasn't hired on the basis of my work on race differences. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I, uh, other, other things, which doesn't always get as much attention on Twitter, uh, but actually, um, most of my work was on philosophy of biology and uh, metaethics. And, uh, that was what I was, um, hired for. Now, the UK, uh, is about 10 years behind the mm -hmm. United States when it comes to wokeism. Agreed with you. So, there. yeah, I, I never got a job in the United States. Um, I've generally been a lot more successful in the UK. Mm -hmm. Uh, after I was hired, there were um, two petitions to fire me. So first there was a, a, a very kind of weak hit piece in the student newspaper, and I was picked up by the Daily Mail. So I was in the Daily Mail, as they're saying I'm a, a racist. And then there were two student petitions. Daily Mail is like me. really trashy tabloid though, right? Yeah, they just publish any garbage. Uh, we'll get clicks. They don't really have poli politics. I think they just want to like have really inflammatory shocking headlines. No, it's just, it's just for clicks. They, they yeah, don't yeah. care about. Go on, yeah. And Interestingly, both petitions to fire me were started by American uh, students. Mm. Like female American, Americans? Women, women, both women from America. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, that, that, yeah, I agree. Like my experience in Britain, I have to say my first year, I was like, uh, at LSE, I was, you know, kind of hunkered down. I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm not going to say anything I don't believe, but I'm ready for to be like blasted with both barrels from woke people. And no, it never really happened. And yeah, I think I think it's in terms of the feminism uh, it's more woke than it is in terms of like race politics. I mean, I think it may be too because the British have the British have a pretty compelling rhetorical narrative that's snappy. Like if people say, "Oh, uh, the colonialism, you're so evil," white British people, like they can just say, "Well, like British Empire is the you know, one of the prime reasons that slavery, at least in the, in the old sense of traditional sense of slavery, is largely a thing of the past in the world." You know. Well, also, they're, they seem to be more worked up about the trans stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it's even America. I know it's a big thing in, in America, but they really out of their minds uh, when it comes to trans stuff in the UK. Yeah, so, I noticed I that think... it's a lot of oxygen, yeah. So there's a controversial Matt Walsh documentary, What is a Woman? Got into trouble with Twitter. And I just saw a brief thing on Twitter that's the best critique of the Matt Walsh documentary, What is, is a Woman? So I think that uh, there is a time and a place to be deceptive. But if you're going to be deceptive as the makers of What is a Woman were, then it puts a much greater burden on, on you. And so here is a two-minute critique of what is a woman. And I think it's a, it's a very fair and important critique. Question for you. How would you feel if I invited you to be on my documentary? But I invite you using a fake name. I've made up a fictional organization. I lie to you about the premise of the film. I lie to you about who's producing it. I don't tell you that I plan to use the film to mock you, that it will incite harassment and death threats against you. Let's talk about What is a Woman, a documentary produced by Matt Walsh and his team at The Daily Wire. What is What is a Woman? To be honest, it's just a movie version of the things you usually see on Daily Wire's website. It's just a lot of gender ideology movement and, like, misgendering. That's all just table stakes with these people, so let's just leave that aside. What you do need to know about this movie is that The Daily Wire and its employees created this elaborate ruse of fake names and fake organizations to trick people into being in the film. We're not talking like oh, they exaggerated, or lied by omission. No, they fully made shit up. I know this because my college professor contacted me recently to let me know he's in the film without his consent. Sure, he agreed to be in a film, but not this one. He shared the emails with me, and now I'm making them public for the first time. 
Let's look at a Daily Wire interview request. My professor didn't hear from the Daily Wire. He heard from a woman named Rebecca Dobkovitz. She contacted him about an independent documentary about transgender and LGBTQ communities. When she asked for a funding source, she said they were being funded by a benevolent source that would like to remain anonymous. The professor says that when he arrived to do the interview, they hid Matt Walsh from him until the interview started. That way they could still capture some footage just in case he recognized Matt. The key thing here is that my professor revoked consent in writing once he found out what this film was really about, but they just ignored his email. All of this, by the way, squares with what a trans activist named Eli Ehrlich shared with the public last year. Last February, Eli said that she was contacted by someone named McKenna Lynn from the Gender Unity Project. McKenna represented herself as a curious and well-heeled grad student who was self-funding her own documentary about the LGBT community. But Eli did some digging and learned that McKenna Lynn was really McKenna Waters, a producer for Matt Walsh. She also learned that they didn't just make a website for their fake organization, they actually registered it as a real LLC. That LLC is registered to Justin Folk, the director of What is a Woman. Daily Wire hasn't shut the fuck up about this documentary since they launched it last year. But this? This they never mentioned. Okay, I think that's a uh, pretty pretty fair critique and uh, a different different perspective on the the matt walsh documentary that gets so much uh, traction in right-wing circles okay one of the dumbest things going on in the news media and particularly popular with populist right-wing pundits such as tucker carlson is all this conspiracy theorizing about ufos all right and it's uh, just so many acquaintances of mine are really you know thinking that there's something in this you know this new talk new revelations about ufos all right i don't buy any of this ufo stuff it seems completely far-fetched it just seems absolutely moronic and luckily decoding the gurus did a pretty good interview on their patreon here with uh, mick west a journalist on uh, ufos and conspiracy psychology uh, are skeptical after yeah. what's already revealed and what it, more is is promised to be delivered but I, i'm wondering from the deep dive that you've done into the material that's been released, how you would characterize what's come out over the past couple of years with these releases? Uh, it's not very compelling in terms of making the case that these are alien spaceships or even any kind of advanced technology. There's really nothing in any of the videos that unambiguously demonstrates anything anomalous. And there's a lot of the videos that come out, uh, not just these three uh, older videos, but some of the newer videos, that initially people say this is the best UFO video of all time. And then when you do a bit of analysis of it, it just it just shows nothing. Uh, and you know, that's true for things that were leaked. There was a famous Green Triangle video that came out like uh, two or three years ago. And the guy who released that, Jeremy Corbell, was saying, this is the best you know, government-sourced UFO video of all time. And this was the big headline at the time. And like 10 minutes after he released the video, I pointed out what it actually was, which was these green triangles, which is a camera artifact. And everyone's like, no, Mick, that can't be right. Jeremy Corbell said it was like a, a flying pyramid. Uh, and he, Corbell says that, that that people on the ship said it was a flying pyramid. And he had all these witnesses saying it was a flying pyramid. Uh, but then I, <laughs> I matched up the video to a star map. You can see, you know, this, this triangle here is this star. This triangle is this star. And all these triangles match stars. There's one triangle that's flying along and it's flashing. And the flashing of the light is pretty much identical to the, the navigation lights of a, of a 737. So instead of it being like a, a video of like, you know, amazing flying UFOs that are pyramid shaped, it turned out to be a video of some stars and um, a, a plane flying over. And you know, this type of thing is, is kind of indicative of, of you know, a lot of things. Like one is, you know, the claims people make, but also people in the military make mistakes. This, this video, you know, I, I did the analysis, but like about a year later, there was a congressional hearing where they showed the same video and then they, they explained essentially that my analysis was correct. They didn't mention me or anything, but they, they, they said like, you know, that this is, this is a camera artifact. Uh, they didn't say there were stars. They hadn't even got to that bit yet. Yeah, they're doing that now. They said that they said, they said recently that they're, they're, they're going to look at some star maps and they're going to try to like, you know, really close this case. But, you know, figured it out two years ago. But they also released some new videos at the time. And two of the videos they released had audio. And the audio was the guy who was called the Snoopy team leader, who sounds like a silly name, but Snoopy stands for like, I don't know, like systems operations and an integration or something, you know, some, some acronym, but it's basically the people who are tasked with taking video and photos of things that approach the ship. So they stand on the bow or the, the, the railings and they have the really big cameras or the, the night vision and they take, take video of things. So this guy's talking about what he's looking at and he's, he's saying, Snoopy team leader, blah, 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 I'm at this, this, this location, this time, this, uh, um, you know, this, this, uh, this, this angle, this speed, uh, looking at uh, three unidentified aerial systems, uh, which is military speak for drones, essentially. And they're showing this video, and there's these three things, these three triangles in the, in the sky. But those three triangles, they weren't, they weren't drones. They were stars. There weren't even any flashing lights in this one. It was just three stars that he was looking at. And this happened twice. These are two different videos. Uh, the exact same thing. Like the guy's like, you know, USS Russell looking at the bow. This is like unidentified um, aerial system, which is, uh, I think he said, like 400 feet off the, off the bow. And 
it was the star, I can't remember, it was a Capella, I think. But it's, so it's a known star. Only said it was flashing red, green, and white, which is the colors that Capella's flashes. It's one of those stars that twinkles in different colors. So military people make mistakes, and this has been revealed over and over again. They released a video of what they said was a drone in infrared, but it was actually a plane. And they haven't even owned up to that one yet. It's obviously a plane. Anyone can see it as a plane. But uh, there's this, this kind of, I don't know, there's this thread of mistakes running through all of this, this UFO stuff coming from the government. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising, should it? I mean, the atmosphere and even the ocean is, is visually speaking, an inherently ambiguous place. And uh, people... Wow. Uh, Laura, is it Laura Slessinger? No, that's Dr. Laura, but uh, Laura Ingram, man, she's had really bad lip job. I mean, I have seen so many awful lip jobs that are just painful t to look at. It has to be the, the plastic surgery procedure with the worst success rate. I, I just see time and again, you know, public personalities who have a lip job and it always looks awful. Ugh. All right, back to uh, Mick West here talking when decoding the gurus. Well, you know, and, and it is unlike sort of normal objects that are maybe closer to us and if you might encounter in everyday life, things are often like ungrounded. So it seems like it should be quite easy for people to, to make, you know, um, to, to make errors when assessing oh, things they see. Sure, but like, you know, when you're, um, you know, what they call the trained observer, this is something that's very big in the UFO community. They, they say like, this was observed by trained observers. And here we have examples of someone who, you know, not just pilots who, who are trained to fly a plane and look for other things. They're not really trained to observe things. These are people whose only job is to observe. They're trained observers of you know, things coming towards the ship. And they were mistaking stars for drones. I mean, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Uh, and you know, people are you know, reporting things on video. Like these, these triangles like, went up the chain of command and people were investigating it. And it wasn't for it. They said it was a year later that they figured out that these triangles were actually just uh, uh, artifacts of the camera. I think like they've had this video and it's like, there's this bizarre triangle swarming the ship. I said, no, you know, they're artifacts of the camera and they're actually stars, which is, you know, I'm sure they'll release uh, a little report on that. Uh, I think it's coming in August or something, but you know, they might push it till next year, but you know, they'll eventually admit that these things are, are stars. But yeah, it's, uh, it's not a good look. And, and even the more recent videos, uh, they're showing videos now saying, look, we've solved this case. And they show a video and it's like three dots moving around on the screen. And you can tell, obviously, it's just the cameras moving around that's making these dots move around. And they were saying, this is something that we all thought was anomalous at the start. The pilots couldn't figure out what it was. They tried to catch up with these three dots, but they couldn't catch up with them. And it was just three planes off in the distance. And it was moving around because the camera was moving around. They couldn't catch it up because it was, it was 100 miles away. And there's more. I mean, I could keep going, but uh, you, know, you get the idea here. It's, I mean, what is, what's going on? The interesting thing there is a little bit that I, I find it fascinating with the UFO community that... They have a kind of selective charity um, which they apply, whereby uh, eyewitness accounts, like uh, like you said, trained pilots or whatever that that have um, accounts of observing, uh, you know, a UFO, are are treated as if you know to to disagree or to at, at least to propose alternative explanations for what they observe. It's like insulting of their oh, yeah. expertise. But on the other hand, they're very clear that you should always be skeptical of everything that the government says and and, and does. So it's like there's a hyper skepticism towards any narrative that contradicts or is, it says, you know, that they investigated UFOs and they didn't find enough evidence to find it credible. And then on the other hand, there's like a, a hyper charity or, or credibility extended to eyewitness testimony. And it, it's interesting because it's often in the same conversation, like it's sometimes in the same paragraph that like both of those approaches are deployed. It must be frustrating to yeah. deal with. Yeah, it's kind of understandable though that uh, you would treat two things differently. One is kind of uh, an organization uh, doing things and the other one is an individual doing things just speaking for themselves. So if you, if you think like a government spokesperson saying, we don't know anything about UFO, it's very different to a, a pilot saying, I saw a UFO once. So, you know, you think the government spokesperson is doing their job. Pilots, you know, their job isn't to, to lie to people about seeing UFOs. So I think it's kind of understandable that you, you would get that. But there is this kind of a veneration for, uh, uh, for pilots and uh, military pilots in particular. And if I, if I say, say things about pilots, not about them, but just to question their accounts, it's viewed sometimes as a grave insult that I, I really should apologize for. But what I'm doing is saying, well, maybe maybe he was a bit mistaken in, in judging the size of this object or the, the distance away that this object is. And you know, that's basically all I'm saying, that pilots are humans. They can make mistakes. And pilots do make mistakes. You know, like we've, I've been talking about the other mistakes. Pilots themselves, they're not immune to mistakes. Uh, sometimes pilots you know, fly into the ground because they misjudged how high they were off the ground. This is something that happens. You know, there's a famous UFO pilot, Commander David Fravor. Uh, he didn't fly into the ground. He's a great pilot. But he says that when he was engaging with this, this Tic Tac object, this supposed Tic Tac object, he very deliberately flew down very slowly. And he explains why he does this. He's done this, explained this several times. 
times he says yeah the sky the the sea looks the same uh from from uh 2000 feet as it does from 8000 feet so if you're not careful you'll misjudge your altitude and you're, you're flying to the, the ocean so you should descend towards the ocean surface slowly so he's, he's, you know, he's admitting there that pilots make mistakes and you have to be careful and you have to be aware of these mistakes and yet we're also meant to take everything that he says about the observations of a tic-tac object that he's never seen before as being like uh you know the the word of law like written in stone it must have happened exactly like that when it probably didn't yeah you must uh, respect the the lived experience of uh ufo you know, conspiracy minded uh, theorizers so where have i been the the past uh, nine days haven't done any live streams for about nine days well i guess the more good things i've got going on in my life you know the more love i've got in my life you know, the more, you know, human connection that I've got going on in my life, uh, the less inclination I have to live stream. Also, I like to periodically take you know, a good step back for a few days, a week or so, and just reassess, you know, what, what the hell am I doing? I mean, just spend more time reading, contemplating, you know, journaling, uh, stuff like that, uh, instead of just doing these live streams out of, out of habit. But, you know, question how I spend my, my time, my my resources, what I want to do here, you know, what exactly am I going to, you know, contribute to the stream of life? You know, what can I, what can I do that is uh, helpful to, to people? Okay. I think uh, that will do it for now. Back to the love. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.